Welcome to the Cancer, Connect, Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to in introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop. And today's program is uh, actually on living with small cell lung cancer. It's part two. And part two is focusing on diagnostics in small cell lung cancer, how diagnostics help inform treatment decisions. Some of you are on part one, and now you get to be on part two of the program. Now today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as other lung cancer organizations as, as well. And because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So that, and also because of your interest as well in the program. Um, so we have on the call today over 558 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, France, Greece, and the United Kingdom. So clearly you are a global group, an international group, and we're delighted that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us to learn more about this topic and about small cell lung cancer. Now today's program is supported by AbbVie, and I really want to thank them for their support of both today's program and this whole two-part series. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is a medical oncologist, thoracic oncology service, developmental therapeutics, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee is going to address an overview of diagnostic technologies, their role in better understanding small cell lung cancer and its treatment options, and clinical trials for small cell lung cancer. It's now my distinct pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you everyone for having me here at this Cancer Care teleconference um, to provide some information for patients and their families. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to briefly introduce, so small cell lung cancers is the, um, uh, accounts for about 13% of lung cancers in total, so it's still a, a huge burden of disease worldwide. Uh, they are biologically aggressive uh, type of disease, so uh, they grow fast, but they do also respond very well to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And there are currently a host of new drugs being developed in the uh, context of clinical trials. So to tailor the treatment best for each individual patient, it's, it's uh, extremely important to uh, have uh, all the diagnostic tools to, to get the diagnosis right. Uh, and there are two categories in this. Firstly, it's the pathology, uh, and secondly, it's the imaging. So just briefly on pathology, the diagnosis of small cell lung cancer is a pathologic diagnosis. We need to get that uh, confirmed by our uh, specialist pathologist, and Dr. Kerr will be uh, going into greater details on, on this, but just briefly, uh, histologically, uh, we make the diagnosis in lung cancer, small cell versus non-small cell, and that's a, that is a big uh, divide traditionally because the treatment uh, is are entirely different for for each group of of diseases, and there are now subgroups uh, in the non-small cell, but in small cell, it's by and large still considered a, a distinct disease um, that's categorized separately. Uh, immunohistochemical markers are used to uh, help uh, increase the confidence and, uh, of the diagnosis for confirmation. And then in uh, this day and age, uh, there's also the use of genomics and proteomics to guide uh, therapies in, of novel agents, and those are commonly used in the uh, clinical trials uh, context. And genomics, including gene mutation testing, uh, such as P53 and IB, gene mutations that are currently matched into certain clinical trials and the proteomics as well in terms of targeted therapy options that Dr. Farago may be going into greater detail. So that's the pathology. That's the first thing. The number one 
thing that we at the oncologist needs to uh, to confirm before embarking upon any treatment. Uh, further than that, uh, the imaging uh, is crucial. So we use a host of uh, new techno diagnostic technologies, uh, including um, I mean, patients often present with some symptoms and get a chest x-ray and then we move on to CT scan uh, and uh, if available and, and indicated we do the PET st uh, scan as well because it's a little bit more sensitive for bone metastasis. Uh, but at the same time the PETs have to, the PET scans have to be interpreted uh, in, in a clinical context because there can be uh, uptake in, in a variety of non-cancer conditions as well. So one needs to be aware of false positives. Um, and also the uh, MRI scans are commonly done for uh, central nervous system uh, staging uh, for the brain uh, in particular. So the initial diagnostic imaging uh, tests often including a PET-CT and an MRI of the brain and to, to work out the stage of the disease and uh, its locations, where it's, it, it is and where it's spread. And we, we use that to categorize the staging into two main broad stages of limited disease versus extensive disease uh, small cell lung cancers. And treatments are different between the two. But nevertheless, uh, the treatment would involve, in general, a com combination of chemotherapy uh, and either concurrent or followed by radiation therapy. Uh, and the choice of treatment would really depend on the, uh, the diagnostic staging, the clinical symptoms. So for example, if the patient has extensive stage small cell lung cancer, which means it's gone from one side of the lung uh, to uh, it's, it's gone from, from one location to outside the lung uh, or to the opposite side of the lung. Uh, beyond a field of radiation therapy, uh, then that's considered extensive stage, and the treatment of choice would be systemic chemotherapy. And the uh, in in that setting, we would then use CT scans uh, during the course of treatment to uh, assess response to the uh, to the treatment, and then depending on the response of the treatment, and that is follow-up CT scans, which may be done every uh, six weeks, nine weeks, um, then the oncologist would then make the, the best decision and the recommendation regarding further treatment. So after uh, the best response from chemotherapy, one may consider uh, the addition of radiation therapy for any residual disease in the chest uh, if the patient has had a very good response and have residual has residual disease, or uh, and uh, prophylactic cranial irradiation, which is preventative radiation therapy to the brain, because small cells love traveling to the to the brain, uh, and such therapies has also been shown to improve uh, outcomes uh, for patients uh, to to irradiate the brain as a preventative treatment, uh, and that extends life as well. So. Um, both of those, getting the pathology right and getting the imaging right and using the tools for um, those diagnostic technologies to, to monitor for disease recurrence or disease treatment response can uh, play crucial roles in guiding treatment. And just uh, finally on clinical trials, which I briefly mentioned at the beginning, there are a host of new therapies that's being developed right now for patients with small cell lung cancers. And these include targeted therapy, which means you have to find the target. And that's where the uh, molecular diagnostic become exceedingly important. Uh, for example, the new uh, uh, antibody drug conjugate Rover-T uh, which was uh, just presented and published last year um, by Dr. Rudin et al., uh, only works, tend, only tends to work in patients with DLL3 high protein uh, positive small cell lung cancer. So it's a very targeted to a specific population. If the genomics, uh, in, in the genomic setting, uh, the um, P53 and RB mutations are universal. Uh, almost in small cell lung cancers. And as a result of that, there are now uh, targeted therapies inhibiting DNA repair pathways. 
uh, driven by those mutations, and uh, and that's that's a, a new area of investigation. Furthermore, there's immunotherapy options that Dr. Farago will go into details using immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, that also tend to work in some patients. Uh, so overall, uh, I would say the uh, the diagnostics is very important. Uh, we encourage every patient and their family to talk to the oncologist about uh, uh, both the pathology and imaging and how, how uh, it would impact on, on the treatments. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. That was really wonderful and really very informative to everybody and really setting the stage for the whole program. So thank you for really starting this off so, so eloquently. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Anna Fargo. Dr. Fargo is attending physician, Center for Thoracic Cancers, Massachusetts General Hospital, instructor, Harvard Medical School, research affiliate, Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, MIT Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And Dr. Fargo is going to address predicting response to treatment, how these technologies guide treatment choices, targeted treatments and immunotherapy, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Fargo. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, and it's really a pleasure to be on the call with you all today. Um, I'll start by talking about predicting response to treatment and how technologies may help guide treatment choices. Here, I'll really reiterate a lot of what Dr. Lee said previously. Um, I would say that the most important tools that we have in our toolbox right now for predicting response to treatment and then guiding treatment choices um, are the imaging technologies and, of course, the, uh, the diagnostic pathology the, um, to confirm the diagnosis. Um, so the imaging technologies that were mentioned include um, CT scans and PET scans to really define the scope of the disease, um, as well as generally brain MRI. Sometimes we use a head CT scan um, in place of MRI in certain situations. And the, really the goal of, of these technologies is to um, do what we call staging, which is really to ask the question, where is the disease located? Um, and again, as Dr. Lee said, um, when we have situations where um, the disease appears to be localized only to the chest and we can treat it with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, then um, we do um, do that in some situations. In the majority of cases with, with patients with small cell lung cancer, unfortunately, even at the time of diagnosis, we do see disease that has already spread outside of the chest um, to distant organs in the body or to the brain. Um, and in those cases, generally, we will treat with chemotherapy alone. And again, as Dr. Lee said, sometimes we follow that with radiation to the chest. Sometimes we follow that with radiation to the brain. Um, and, and, and I think that we are probably going to be moving in a direction in the future where we bring more into account, such as molecular diagnostics. But for standard of care practice, um, really, we're not there yet with um, using molecular diagnostics to guide treatment choices in the at least in the upfront setting in the in the setting when patients are initially diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. As clinicians, I would say the other thing that we certainly take into account when we're thinking about treatment choices and treatment recommendations, of course, are really the the individual characteristics of the patient who we're treating. Um, so things that we look at are what what is the patient's age, what are their other medical um, comorbidities, or in other words, other medical problems that they may be facing, uh, how fit are they, and, and these can help guide what our recommendation is for uh, the type of therapy or um, how we choose to sequence our therapies. The other thing I think that we certainly must take into account is patient preference, and this is an important thing I certainly recommend everybody to discuss openly with their medical teams um, and to ask questions of, well, are there choices and, and how may um, an individual's or a family's um, preferences kind of influence which choices may be best for that individual patient. Um, in terms of moving on to targeted therapies and immunotherapy, I, um, again, uh, would reiterate what Dr. Lee said. So, so there are exciting studies, I think, that are up and coming in small cell lung cancer. 
where we will really start to likely incorporate targeted treatments and immunotherapy more and more into our practice. Um, there have been several large-scale genetic studies of small cell lung cancer in the past several years, and these have shown some um, consistent DNA changes that we see in these tumors, including the two that have been previously mentioned, the loss of two key genes, P53 and RB. Both of these genes are what we call tumor suppressor genes, which the way, the way that I sort of like to think about these are, these are genes whose job it is to kind of put the brakes on the tumor. So when those genes are mutated or absent, it gives the tumor more ability to kind of drive faster, to, to move forward. It's hard to directly target or treat the loss of a tumor suppressor gene. That's something that I think we're not good at, not only in small cell lung cancer, but in other diseases as well. Um, but there are other targeted therapies, I think, that are of interest and that are kind of coming in the pipeline in clinical trials, although they haven't hit standard of care practice yet. So the drug Rova-T or Rovalpituzumab tesserine was mentioned. This is an interesting antibody drug conjugate, which means it has a sort of a two-part drug. Part of the drug is an antibody that targets a particular molecule called DLL3, which is expressed on the surface of a subset of small cell lung cancers. Um, and then the other half of that is a very potent chemotherapy. And the way that the drug works is you can imagine it goes into circulation, it hones in on those cells that are positive, that express that DLL3 marker, it attaches to those cells, it gets internalized, and within those cells, it releases the chemotherapy. This is a concept that's been exploited in other, other cancer types as well with other drugs, and I think it's an exciting new direction to see in small cell lung cancer. Again, that drug is not FDA approved. It's, it is in clinical trials, and we've seen some promising activity in a phase one trial, and we're hoping to see more results coming out in the next year or so about how that drug um, behaves in a larger population. Um, and I'll add to uh, one important point to make is we think about 70 to 80% of small cell lung cancers express this DLL3 marker. So it, it is a large portion of the population that may be um, potentially benefiting from this drug in the future. Um, then thinking about immunotherapy, so immunotherapy is, is a, a type of therapy that has gotten a lot of attention recently um, for good reason. It's a therapy that doesn't directly target the cancer. What it does is it targets the immune system. And the drugs that have um, really been studied in the most detail target the immune system by actually taking the breaks off of the immune system and allowing the immune system to be a little bit more active, a little bit more aggressive in the hope that the immune system will then be able to more effectively treat cancers. Um, and, and we know that in other diseases, um, including in non-small cell lung cancer, in certain patient populations, we see really tremendous benefit with giving some of these immunotherapy drugs um, in certain contexts. In small cell lung cancer, this, again, is something that is under very active investigation, but it's not something that has hit the, um, the mainstream yet in that we don't have FDA approvals yet for immunotherapies in small cell lung cancer. Um, I would say that the studies that we've seen come furthest along in small cell lung cancer, I'll mention now, one of these studies is a study that um, is comparing actually sort of two different immunotherapy strategies. One strategy is a strategy treating patients with a drug called nivolumab on its own, and the other strategy is treating patients with a combination of nivolumab plus a second immunotherapy drug called ipilimumab. These are drugs um, that, again, are approved in, in other cancer types um, and are being tested in small cell lung cancer. Um, and, and in small cell lung cancer patients, we certainly do see responses to these drugs in early phase clinical trials. The nivolumab on its own um, seems to be active in, in a smaller portion of patients than the combination of the ipilimumab and the, and the nivolumab. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the combination does seem to have a bit more activity. The trade-off is that the combination also 
seems to have more toxicity. So there's a higher rate of side effects with the combination. So this is something that we're looking forward to seeing more of in the future. Um, there are some biomarkers that are used in some immunotherapy trials. One of these that you may hear about is called PDL1. This is a marker that's expressed on certain cancers. And there is certainly a lot of ongoing work in small cell lung cancer looking at the relevance of this biomarker and whether this can predict response to immunotherapy. But I think we really don't have the data yet to tell us whether this is going to be a useful biomarker in small cell lung cancer or not. And then the last thing that I'll move on to is, is uh, the topic of communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. And I think this is a critical topic to be aware of at all points um, over the course of a patient's treatment um, and, um, and their cancer care. I would sort of think about um, these concerns in several categories, and it may be helpful to help to, to categorize these as you communicate with your team. I would think about cancer-related concerns and symptoms. I would then think about treatment-related concerns and symptoms, those that are really stemming more from the treatment that you're receiving rather than from the disease itself. Challenges that you may be facing from other medical conditions, because as we all know, even when patients are facing a, a cancer diagnosis, other medical problems may still be present and active. And then really, perhaps the most important is, is all other aspects of life and, and um, that may be you know, front and center in people's minds. And, and I would strongly encourage people to be very open and active about communicating these with your treatment team. I would ask questions to your treatment team, like what other resources do you have beyond the resources that you may be initially presented with? We think of cancer care these days as a very multidisciplinary approach involving medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons, but also social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, um, and other um, support and caregivers. So I would encourage everyone to ask about resources. I hope that's helpful to, to as, as a starting point to think about those topics. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fargo. That was really exquisite and excellent and very comprehensive and also really identifying that multidisciplinary team that's a resource for people uh, and also creating those those buckets in terms of the um, the issues around their treatment, um, the issues around um, their um, the other their other health problems, the challenges they may have, and also just the rest of their life and, and leading it. And all of those things are things that they can talk with the healthcare team about. So thank you for really um, for highlighting that as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology and Laboratory Genetics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Mayo Clinic. Um, Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, and she is going to address the role of the pathologist and how pathology reports help inform treatment planning. So it's really wonderful to have Dr. Um, uh, Kerr on the, on the call today. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Kerr. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for inviting me to talk about the role of the pathologist in small cell lung cancer. I think some of this material may be a bit similar to the other speakers, but it is also from my unique perspective as a laboratory doctor. So most of you will never know the pathologist involved in your cancer care, but you should know that all of you have at least one pathologist working behind the scenes for you to ensure that you and your other cancer doctors have an accurate diagnosis upon which to base your other care decisions. Understanding the role of the pathologist can help you understand how your diagnosis was made and how that specific diagnosis of small cell lung cancer affects your treatment in comparison to other types of cancer. Let me start by talking about what a pathologist does in general. So many of you may be more familiar with the pathologists that you see on TV that are involved in forensic pathology or autopsy pathology specifically in the setting of criminal investigations. Autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice any uh, autopsy medicine in the setting that you see in popular crime shows. 
On the contrary, most pathologists go to medical school just like your other doctors, but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in clinical laboratory testing. This is not research testing, but these are rigorously regulated clinical tests that occur in the clinical laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. This specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years and can run as long as seven or more years. So for example, I myself trained for seven years after medical school before starting my uh, own work as a pathologist. Four of these years were spent learning general pathology, and then I spent two years focusing on genetic testing and another year specifically uh, regarding how to diagnose cancer in small biopsy specimens or what is known as cytopathology. After this training, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests done in the clinical laboratory. This can be done, this can be anything from routine blood tests to examining small tissue biopsies and body fluids to sectioning and examining organ resections for cancer. And this is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care. Studies have found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based on laboratory test results. Your pathologist works with laboratory staff and your other clinical doctors to ensure the quality of test results, and a pathologist often helps other doctors understand the results of tests in patients that have complex medical problems. So now I'll talk specifically about what, what a pathologist does when making a diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. As a lung cancer patient, your first critical interaction with a pathologist probably happens when a tumor is detected either as a lump under your skin or on some sort of imaging scan by a radiologist. Your doctor then orders a tissue biopsy of the tumor to decide if surgery or some other medical therapy is right for you. This may involve both biopsies of the lung tumor itself and biopsies of places where the tumor has potentially spread in your body. If the tumor is just under the skin, a pathologist may perform the biopsy themselves with a small needle. More often though, these first biopsies are now taken by a radiologist, a lung doctor, or a surgeon because they have special expertise on how to safely obtain a sample from tumors that are deeper in the body. This tissue is often examined by a pathologist right at the bedside or in the operating room to ensure that enough material has been obtained to make an accurate diagnosis. The tissue is rapidly examined by a pathologist under a microscope on a glass slide, and feedback is given to the doctor performing the biopsy. The pathologist then processes all of the material obtained in the clinical laboratory and performs additional tests. For small cell carcinoma, the most important tool is examination of the cells under a microscope because the cells of small cell carcinoma have a characteristic appearance when examined by a trained pathologist. You might have heard the term high-grade neuroendocrine carcinoma when uh, your doctor talks to you about small cell carcinoma or it may be, have been in your pathology report. Small cell carcinoma is a specific type of cancer that is both rapidly growing or high grade and has neuroendocrine cell characteristics based on the microscopic appearance of the cells and other tests performed on the cells to see what kinds of proteins they make using special staining techniques, also known as immunohistochemistry. So pathologists sometimes use both of these terms, high grade neuroendocrine carcinoma and small cell carcinoma, to describe small cell carcinoma. To use a non-cancer example, I think of it this way using, say, fruits and vegetables. If I see a bunch of carrots, I can tell you, well, that's a vegetable. If I see an apple, I can tell you that's a fruit. But after careful examination, I might also be able to tell you that the apple is a specific variety of apple, like a Granny Smith apple, that's good for baking. The same is true for lung cancer, in a way. So after looking at the cells under a microscope, I can confirm that we are dealing with small cell cancer rather than other types of cancer, such as non-small cell types of lung cancer, also known as adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. Small cell carcinoma 
can sometimes look similar under the microscope to a few other types of cancer. So your pathologist may need to take some time to examine the biopsy very carefully to make an accurate diagnosis. This step is very important because the treatment for small cell lung cancer is very different in comparison to other types of lung or lymph node cancer. After your pathologist has completed examination of the biopsy, the diagnosis is given to you and your doctors in the form of a pathology report, which documents how much tissue was taken from your body, how it was processed, which tests were used, and then the final diagnosis. So after making a diagnosis of small cell lung cancer and determining the extent of spread, the next step is determining a treatment plan. Your doctors often interact with pathologists at multidisciplinary tumor boards where different kinds of doctors review your case and try to agree on what to recommend in difficult situations. In rare cases of small cell carcinoma that can be potentially cured by surgery, the tumor is removed and then reviewed again by a pathologist to re-examine the diagnosis, refine the extent of tumor, and determine if the tumor has been completely removed which is also called evaluation of the margins. In most cases of small cell carcinoma, however, the tumor cannot be completely removed by surgery, and so other types of medical therapy, including chemotherapy and radiation therapy, are used as discussed in more detail by the other speakers. Finally, uh, because I get a lot of questions about this topic, I just want to touch briefly on the pathologist's role in second opinions for lung cancer care. Unfortunately, even with extensive training and certification, a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under a microscope is not entirely perfect. So in some cases, the biopsy does not contain enough tumor cells, and the procedure needs to be repeated to make sure the diagnosis is accurate. In other difficult cases, a pathologist might show the slides to several of their colleagues or even world experts to determine the most appropriate diagnosis for the tumor. Just like other cancer doctors may disagree about what the best treatment is for your cancer, pathologists can also sometimes disagree on a tumor diagnosis. And this difference can have a big impact on what treatment is recommended for you. Because of this, I encourage you to talk with your cancer doctors about second opinions in pathology because they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on the diagnosis is needed to ensure that you are getting the treatment that best matches your cancer type. With that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of the role of pathologists in your cancer care. I'm going to turn the session back over to Carolyn, and I'll stay on the line for the question and answer period. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was wonderful and actually so important that everybody really understand clearly the role of the pathologist and also in terms of the second opinion as well, so that indeed everyone is confident that they're, they're, they have the correct um, diagnosis for their treatment. That's really important. So thank you for clarifying that. And really, I hope that was helpful to everybody. And do ask questions during the Q&A if you have any about this, because it's really important. Um, and just before we take questions, I just want to talk a little bit about um, your um, being able to access services for some of the emotional and social and practical issues that you may be dealing with. We call psychosocial issues that you may have be confronting in living with uh, small cell cancer and living with cancer in general. Um, so I want to say a word about just cancer care services. They are free and they are provided by about 45 oncology social workers, and um, they offer a host of services from practical to financial assistance to counseling, and we often do counseling um, online or on the telephone, as well as uh, telephone and online support groups. We currently have about 120 different types of online support groups, all of them facilitated by a professional oncology trained social worker, and we also have uh, a number of telephone support groups as well. And for those of you living in the regional areas where Cancer Care has offices, we also have a media, you know, media group meetings in the offices as well. Um, but perhaps most importantly is that these are services that can make a big difference in just having a chance to talk with someone about your concerns, 
um, about your concerns of your family in terms of talking with your children or your employer about your cancer. I think many of the things that I think Dr. Fargo alluded to in terms of the whole rest of your life, those concerns that you may have. Um, that that's important to have um, a, a place to bring that to um, to talk to your healthcare team about, it, and then to have other resources um, for that. Um, and um, so I can't encourage you enough to do this. And indeed, um, one can call Cancer Care at one eight hundred eight one three four six seven three, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask. Um, actually, um, Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going. And Ayala will tell you how to queue up for questions. We have some of you already queuing up for questions, and um, but some of you may have been on the programs before. But for those of you who haven't, um, she'll explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to your question, I'll explain to you how to get your questions answered. So, Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one. So we have a question about um, actually um, heritable uh, cancer. So there's a question of can I pass my lung cancer to my children? So um, I'm going to ask um, Dr. Lee if you could start with that question, and um, I'll have, if others would like to add to that. Um. Yeah. The, so the the answer is no. Uh, not not for small cell lung cancers. It's incredibly rare for uh, uh, in in fact for lung cancers to be uh, inheritable. Uh, there are some very very rare subsets, uh, predominantly non-small cell lung cancers, uh, but not in this disease. Okay, excellent. And um, so I have a question, um, actually, it looks like it's due to Dr. Lee as well. It's about clinical trials. And the question is, and I know you addressed this, but what clinical trials are available for people with small cell lung cancer? Um, if you could just describe some of them, that might be helpful to our participants. Sure. So uh, we talked about ROVA-T. So that's, uh, that's an ongoing uh, targeted therapy uh, clinical trial that uh, we, we have uh, open here at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, we talked about P53 and RB, and the reason I mentioned it was because both tumor suppressors actually are responsible for the G1 uh, cell cycle checkpoint for DNA repair. Now, when those two genes are broken uh, or, or lost, um, then essentially the G1 checkpoint is uh, is broken. The cell then relies on G2 checkpoint for um, uh, for repair before mitosis, before cell division. And that is uh, very, uh, and in this subset of cells, um, they rely on the G2 checkpoint. And we one is a protein that really helps um, uh, control, regulate the G2 checkpoint. So there is a new clinical trial of we one uh, protein inhibitor. That's the uh, AZD1775. Those drugs are so new, they don't even have names yet. So this is phase, phase one clinical trial. Uh, in combination with what we call a PARP inhibitor, which uh, also is is uh, responsible for DNA repair, and that's the drug is Olaparib. It's FDA approved for ovarian cancers, but not in lung cancers. So combining AZD1775, which is a we one inhibitor, with Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, this combination has, has outstanding activity in labs in the mouse models for uh, small cell lung cancer models uh, because of that mechanism of targeting the G2 checkpoint. Uh, so if if you the, the G1 checkpoint is broken because of P53RB. The G2 checkpoint you inhibited with the V1 plus the PARP inhibitor, that leads to cell cycle chaos and, and basically the cell death, uh, apoptosis, and the cell dies itself. So very ac good activity, promising in the lab. We just brought it into phase one clinic and uh, enrolling patients with small cell lung cancers, and uh, we will see. So it's an exciting uh, new drug development, uh, the oral combination pills, uh, and, and we do have the trial at, uh, here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, amongst many other centers throughout the United States. It's a worldwide study as well. So that study is, is also open. Um, and uh, Dr. Farago already mentioned that there are a host of immunotherapy options out there. It's not a panacea, but every, everything counts. So it helps some patients, and we, 
we need to figure out which patients, those predictors of response, we haven't gotten there yet, but we, we need it urgently to figure out then. So the idea is that we, uh, we, we do the clinical trials, we, um, we make those therapeutic advances, and we refine the precision so in the future uh, you can uh, uh, one might just do the uh, do the uh, biomarker testing and then match onto the right trial. That's the future, but uh, we're not there yet. So for now, I would encourage every patient with small cell lung cancers to go on a clinical trial uh, where it's available. That's where the promise is, where the advances are, um, and of course uh, all those standards of care uh, should be given. So that's including the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy to maximize the the uh, the treatment outcome for every patient. So you get all the best outcome from chemotherapy, still very responsive, and radiation therapy, and then you get the added benefit of of clinical trial and you advance uh, cancer care around the world. So that's my uh, my encouragement for for patients to go on clinical trials. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Farco, do you want to add anything to that? Because I I know it's such a challenge for people to participate in trials and. Um, I know that um, if you had any thoughts about that as well, just um... yep, absolutely. Um, again, I, I think Dr. Lee brought up some really fantastic trials and and considerations, and um, there's certainly a lot of excitement in the field about um, several lines of investigation that are are coming into clinical trials and being studied in patients. I would encourage people to, um, if you haven't already, visit the website clinicaltrials.gov. This is a website uh, that will that has listings of, of all of the clinical trials that are currently underway. You can do searches using keywords. The easiest way, I think, to search for small cell lung cancer is just to put in SCLC, and you could do SCLC Boston or SCLC um, New York or whatever. You know, you can do whatever your local area is if that would be helpful. Um, you can also um, uh, search for specific drugs if there is a drug that you've heard about and you want to find out more information about what the trials are. That will give you the listings of the trials, and then you can click on a particular trial, and often there will, there will be more information there about the details of the trial. Just in general, there are trials generally ranging from Phase 1 to Phase 3 trials. Phase 1 trials tend to be early phase trials with smaller numbers of patients where generally the primary goal of the trial is to look at safety of, of the drug. Uh, moving into phase two and phase three trials, those are generally more designed to really ask the question of whether the drug has activity, whether it looks like it has some promising um, efficacy in a certain patient population, and in some cases, trials are designed to ask whether a certain drug is better than uh, another comparison drug. Um, each trial will also have its own very specific eligibility criteria, which means that the trial is designed to enroll a very specific population of patients who meet certain criteria. And all trials do this, um, but they, the eligibility criteria for each trial may be somewhat unique. So that's another thing that you can learn more about on that website. And then, of course, I'd encourage you to ask your medical teams about trials that, that they know of that may be of particular interest in your case. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. This is really important, and I hope you all think about this. Um, and Ayala, I think we have someone on the phone to ask a question as well. Yes. Our first question comes from Alicia M. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, I was just wondering at what point um, does the prophylactic radiation to the brain start or when is that typically offered in the treatment plan? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, Dr. Lee, do you want to address that? Sure. So uh, in our practice at Sloan Kettering, and, and uh, this is also in accordance with the uh, the guidelines, we, gen we do prophylactic cranial uh, irradiation after the completion of, of chemotherapy. So, um, and provided that the patients have had a good response to the chemotherapy. So in the extensive stage setting, uh, chemotherapy is, is usually given where it's a combination of platinum and a topicide, 
and it's it's uh, up to six cycles if if uh, the patient is tolerating the drug well and and responding well and uh, we we finish at six cycles and that's the time when we do a scan to show whether there's a good response and then the uh, the final scan will be done around after six cycles, so that's about uh, four and a half months after the beginning of chemotherapy. And that's the time when a good response, say for example, if there's a good response, I would then refer the patient to see my uh, radiation oncologist uh, colleague for consideration of the prophylactic cranial irradiation. So roughly, you know, there's there's a little bit of uh, a rest, a little break after the chemo, you do the referral, you take another week to get the appointment. So there's a few weeks off uh, after the completion of chemotherapy, but roughly around five months into the treatment, um, uh, you would be considered for, uh, the patient would be considered for that treatment. So usually it's a two-week uh, short course uh, treatment of, of prophylactic cranial irradiation. Uh, so that's in the extensive stage setting. In the, in the limited stage setting, you may give four cycles of chemotherapy combined with radiation together and with a curative intent. Uh, you complete that, you have a little break um, of a few weeks, and then you get on with the uh, uh, prophylactic cranial irradiation, provided you had a good response as well. So it's uh, generally it's after the completion of chemotherapy, and it's a pretty short course treatment. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, that was helpful. Thank you. And we have a question for Dr. Kerr from one of our online participants. Is it unusual that I have not received a written pathology report from my doctor and what value would it have for me to get a copy from my doctor? So Dr. Kerr, could you comment on that? That's important. Sure. That's a great question. Um, I would say in almost all cases, a pathology report is available to you in some form. Um, so it's something you should ask your doctor about. They have access to the pathology report, and they can give you a copy of that from your medical record. Sometimes um, patients have difficulty reading pathology reports because we use very specialized language um, that's used to communicate between pathologists and also between pathologists and cancer doctors. But those are questions that your doctor should be able to answer, and I, I really do encourage patients to read their pathology reports and ask their cancer doctors questions about it. And Dr. Kerr, are there situations where patients actually can actually be on their treating physician, speak to the pathologist who wrote the report, or is that not usually, is that something that is, is can be part of the protocol or not? Yeah, it can be. So, um, at, for instance, at Mayo Clinic, we have a process because I don't know patients personally, and so we have to have a way of identifying that someone is who they say they are so that we don't release confidential information to the wrong person. Um, but once we've sort of verified that process, I actually do talk to patients about complex reports, including second opinions. Excellent. Thank you. That's very helpful. And that's important for everyone to know. So thank you very much. Um, and we have another question from one of our online participants. And this one is for Dr. Lee. Um, so I'm a patient at um, a hostel in Long Island, and can I get my doctor to enroll me in a song clattering clinical trial, or do I have to change doctors? So if, Dr. Lee, if you could answer this in a general way, because I think many people on the call could ask from wherever they are, how do I get into that trial? It's always a question. Um, so if you could comment about, about that a, a bit. Sure. So uh, uh, geography is certainly a uh, a, concern, a a thing to consider. Um, so Long Island uh, of New York, we have MSK Comac, um, which is a MSK regional satellite site. They do we do run clinical trials in MSK Comac, uh, and we do have uh, some small cell trials as well. But it, it it really depends on the clinical situation, which trial is best for you, and that you need to talk to your your uh, medical oncologist specifically. Now, if you talk about a specific uh, trial, for example, the AZD1775 plus Olaparib, uh, as an example, that trial currently is still only run in MSK Manhattan. We are currently in in major discussions with the sponsor to expand that trial across all sites of MSK. Uh, including uh, COMAC, uh, hopefully eventually uh, soon, very soon hopefully. But that's that these things are uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. So not every trial is available or or the sites and and uh, and the clinical trial slots uh, or the spots come and go. 
So on the phase one clinical trial, as Dr. Farago uh, explained, it's, it's, uh, the, it's looking at safety initially, although we, we do like to get activity as well. But uh, initially when you're doing a safety trial, the, the slots are very few. They come, we have to watch for a month before the next, trial, uh, next slot comes out because we have to observe safety in the first patient and then the next and the next. So the availability of the specific spot uh, is, is also becomes unpredictable. So I get questions all the time. My medical oncologist colleagues say, would, would reach out to me and say, do you have a spot? I have a patient with this condition. Do you have a match? And I often say, uh, uh, yes, this, I may get a slot in the next month. Is this appropriate? If so, make the referral, put the patient on the list. And uh, if the trial comes, uh, the slot comes out, I, I, I will get that slot for that patient. So it, 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 it depends. So it's best to go through the, uh, your primary medical oncologist who will liaise directly with the principal investigator of the specific trial. And then I think for the patient, that's, that's really the, the best way to move forward um, uh, because there's just so many variables. Uh, I think for Long Island at the moment, this particular trial, for example, is only open in Manhattan. So one would have to take into account the burden of travel, the logistics, whether it works out. Last week, I saw a patient who lives uh, out of state, and, and for her, uh, it was just not practical for her to, to, to come. But you know, she, that, that was the information sought. Uh, so the, the geographic uh, convenience uh, and some trials are, are very... Uh, rigorous in terms of its uh, visit requirements, but one would just—I would encourage every patient to seek the trial option, uh, and then if you find one that matches you, uh, both physically, medically, and also for, from a geographic, social perspective, then uh, I would strongly encourage it. But uh, not there's, there's not a trial for everybody in every situation, so best to go through the through the medical oncologist. And, and also trials take uh, patients who are uh, physically fit. So we, we call it performance status. And you have to be fairly functionally independent uh, to go on a trial. And that's a eligibility criteria that's, that's pretty much uniform throughout all the trials. So one has to actually tick that box and pass that eligibility to get on, along with other things, your heart, your heart function often, your renal function, your kidney, your, your liver function, and, and uh, a host of other things you need to check through. So if the consenting you, patient, even after consent, will have to go through clinical trial screening uh, to make sure that the patient is eligible and matches to that trial, and then the trial slot will go, go to that patient. That's usually what happens. So. Uh, the, the world of clinical trial, is, it is very exciting, and I still, again, encourage every patient to seek a clinical trial, but through their regular oncologist uh, to see whether and discuss in detail whether that's the right thing for you or not. And, and Dr. Fargo, you want to comment just on the different types of trials, because there are, uh, I believe there are medical trials, but there are also some quality of life trials as well that are being done sometimes that can be enormously helpful for people to participate in. Do you want to comment on that? or? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think that the discussion so far has really focused on medical trials, treatment trials, um, and, and these are, um, we've been, again, kind of focusing our discussion on, on dr thinking about are there experimental drugs or therapies mm -hmm. out there um, that may be appropriate for a patient. I agree that there are, there's a, a whole other category of, of trials focused on, on quality of life measures um, and quality of life interventions. Um, things like uh, the, looking at whether involvement of palliative care in a patient's course starting early versus starting further on after they more of their cancer care, um, whether that impacts their quality of life and whether that impacts um, other measures of uh, other outcome measures. Um, there are certainly studies uh, at Mass General looking at a number of things, including the role of um, um, opioid medications in managing patient symptoms and um, patient compliance with medications. All of these things, we learn a lot from, from these trials and um, I think um, can, can really have very big impacts on how we take care of patients um, 
and and when when we think about treatment trials this may be sort of intuitive but the patients can only be on one treatment trial at a time quality of life trials and and other interventions are sometimes different sometimes patients can be on a treatment trial for a drug but then at the same time be on a trial looking at um the role of of palliative care involvement um or um or or other things like that so just because um you may or may not be interested in in a treatment trial there there also may be other other ways to uh, participate in other types of trials and and then the other kind of category of trial that I will also mention that's very important from a research standpoint is is there are are often trials at at institutions that are not treatments or other interventions but that where we ask patients for their permission to include them into a research database or for example take a blood sample for studying the cancer in more detail in the laboratory um these are things where patients generally don't have to do a lot um but we would ask patients whether they would be willing to participate in our research on that level and and i i think that these types of kind of behind the scenes research that we do is um in many ways really just as important as the frontline um treatment type trials that that we do thank you awesome Thank you very comprehensive. This is a wonderful we we really have a fantastic team of speakers here. Um and, and Dr. Fargo, I have one more question for you. Um and this comes from one of our online participants. So how does the doctor decide and I realize this is a is a very complex question, so but I I I hope that you'll be able to address it in a general way that will be helpful. How does the doctor decide which diagnostic test to use? That's um that's a that's a very good question. I think that we look at each case individually and I think that there are some one fundamental question is what is the diagnosis? And usually to get at to answer that question, we we obtain a biopsy or a fine needle aspirate or some other way to to physically sample the tumor. Um the the other f- fundamental question is where is this cancer and and has it spread and the way that we answer that is is with various radiographic studies so again people may have choose slightly different studies depending on the exact clinical situation but things like CT scans PET scans sometimes MRI brain imaging with MRI or CT all of those are tools that we can use to to get at that fundamental question of where is the cancer located and that that to us is answering the question of what is the stage of the cancer. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. I know we could go on for more of the afternoon, but this is a one-hour workshop. So I want to thank our speakers. They're wonderful. Um, I want to also thank all of you who've asked questions both on the phone and online as well. And all of you who still have questions, I do want to first of all address how you can get your questions answered. So for anyone on the call who still has a medical question, of course your healthcare team is, a, of course, a wonderful resource. We don't, we don't want to not include your healthcare team. They know you very well. But sometimes people would like to look um, to get some information from a credible source. And we always recommend the National Cancer Institute as a wonderful resource for all of you. They're, they have a, um, a toll-free number of 1-800-422-6237, and their website is www.cancer.gov, and they actually have a live ch- chat feature on their website, which is just terrific because you can pose your question, and they will get you information and address your question for you. So that's, that's just a nice way of getting some additional credible information that could be useful to you. And you did all hear, of course, about, for those of you interested in getting more information about clinical trials, www.clinicaltrials.gov. That's a wonderful resource as well for all of you to access. And indeed, um, www.cancer.gov, they also can address those questions about clinical trials as well. But however, if any of you do have any emotional and psychosocial questions, questions in terms of just, you know, practical issues of financial need or you need someone to talk with um, about your concerns or you want to join a support group or you want to join one of these workshops or you would like to get more 
um, information um, in general from all of our publications at Cancer Care. I would like to know about the resources perhaps in your community in different parts of the country or world. I would suggest that you um, contact our oncology social work staff at Cancer Care. And again, that number is 1-800-813-4673. Or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org where you can actually um, speak with one of, you can actually pose your question or concern on our website and you'll be connected to one of our social workers who will address, help you to address that issue and question that you may have. But most importantly, as we conclude this program today, and I know everyone is from different parts of the country. Some parts of the country have a lot of snow. Some people have a lot of sunshine. Some people have perhaps some rain. You know, all the things going on um, around the world right now. Um, that as we conclude the call, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with uh, cancer, with small cell lung cancer. I want you to now know that you are part of a community of support, and we are here to help you. Your healthcare team, of course, is here to help you, and our staff at Cancer Care are here to help you as well. And so in those moments when you do feel alone or when you're anticipating feeling alone or concerned, don't hesitate to call um, Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE. And I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for participating today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.